You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Greetings, fellow believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. In this episode, I will present a possible interpretation for the 2300 days of Daniel 8 and the building of the Millennial Temple. First, let's look at a brief summary of the chapter. The vision was given to Daniel in the year 551 BCE, which was uh, two years after the vision of chapter 7, which which was given in about 553 BCE, and which uh, is according to biblical chronology about 3572 AH, that is in the year of man. For perspective, the events and vision of chapter 9 occurred 12 years later in 538 BCE or 3587 AH. And it can be demonstrated from scripture that this was actually about 456 years before the birth of Jesus. But, of course, that involves a detailed study in biblical chronology, which is not within the scope of this particular episode. Another important factor is to recognize that from chapter 8 until the very end of the book, it is written in Hebrew prose, all except for chapter 8, 23 through 26. That portion, alone in the entire text from chapter 8 until the end, is written in poetry, but more on that later. Daniel 8, 3 through 14 is historical and briefly outlines the kingdoms of Media, Persia, Greece, and the four kingdoms into which Alexander's kingdom of Greece was divided. The small horn of verse 9 refers to Antiochus Epiphanes of Syria, who claimed the Syrian throne in about 175 BC. The small amount of information given does in fact find literal historical fulfillment in the time period uh, that was uh, before the uh, Roman Empire became dominant. Now concerning the issue of the 2300 days at verses 10 through 14, we need to look at the history of Antiochus and, and glean a few items from secular history. This study is not concerned with the details, but I need to give a brief summary. The activity of Antiochus, the little horn, is indicated at Daniel 8.11. It, the, the horn, Antiochus, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the people, that is the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Obviously, the commander is, uh, is the Lord God. Uh, this occurred in about 167 uh, BC. However, even before this persecution activity of Antiochus began, he interfered with the religious politics of Israel. And after the pious and legitimate high priest Onias was assassinated in 171 BC, Antiochus appointed an unqualified Menelaus to the position of high priest. I suggest that this 
is what actually began the period of desecration to the temple and the holy place, and not his actions in 167 BC. Prior to this, the religious faithfulness of the Jews had already begun to deteriorate. It is for this reason that Antiochus was allowed by God to ultimately ransack Jerusalem in 167 BC. Daniel 8.12 tells us that it is because of transgression that the people, the host, will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and do as it pleases and be successful. That spiritual decline before Antiochus invaded is described secularly at 1 Maccabees 1, 11 through 15. Quoting from that passage, In those days went there out of Israel wicked men who persuaded many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the heathen that are round about us. For since we departed from them, we have had much sorrow. So this device pleased them well. Uh, then certain of the people were so forward uh, herein that they went to the king and gave them license <clears throat> to do after the ordinances of the heathen. Whereupon they built a place of exercise at Jerusalem, according to the customs of the heathen, and made themselves uncircumcised and forsook the holy covenant, and joined themselves to the heathen and were sold to do mischief. Daniel 8, 13 and 14, the question is asked and answered, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes desolation, so as to allow both the sanctuary and the people, that is the host, to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be made righteous. The 2300 days is a round number of days that began in the year when the false priest Menelaus was appointed by Antiochus. It lasted until the temple was cleansed on 1225-164 BC by Judas Maccabeus. There is no issue at this point what monthly or yearly measurement is used since 2300 days can be counted close enough to the event of that initial desecration of the holy place by the uh, appointment of Menelaus. When Judas entered Jerusalem and cleansed the temple, it was at that time that the restoration of the holy place occurred. Uh, the word for restored is the uh, Hebrew verb sadak. It's in the nifal stem, which means to be made righteous. That is, the sanctuary would then be in a place that is acceptable and righteous in God's eyes. Now, as already mentioned, Antiochus did not actually desecrate the temple until 1225 of 167 BC, uh, when the sacrifices were stopped and a Greek altar was built. And there are not 2,300 days between 167 and 164 BC. However, the pseudo line of priests and the majority of the people violating Jewish religious standards constituted a desecration of the entire worship protocol. And when one counts back from 1225 of 164 BC, he arrives at the beginning of the year 171. That is the year in which Onias was killed. 
and Menelaus was appointed. Taking this period of time as a round number, measured from the beginning of the Jewish year, is the only interpretation that really fits all the facts. This seems to be the most reasonable understanding of the history. However, in verses 15 through 22, Gabriel's explanation goes far beyond the historical fulfillment in Antiochus and pertains specifically to the time of the end at verse 17 and the appointed time of the end, verse 19. Uh, therefore, in verses 23 through 26, the focus is entirely pertinent to the end times and not to Antiochus. And uh, the vision of the 2300 days of verse 14 is then given a dual fulfillment. This is indicated clearly by the explanation from Gabriel and by the change in writing style. In verses 15 through 22, uh, Gabe explains to Daniel that the vision has application to the time of the end. Here is where the dual fulfillment of prophecy comes in. Uh, chapter 8 verses 1 through 14 are only historical but they serve as an example of what will happen at the final period of the indignation. Gabriel is not telling Daniel that those verses are of an end times context, but they have application to an end times context. Uh, that is, uh, the desolation of the temple serves as a type of the desolation that will occur with the final Antichrist. And that is what verses 23 through 26 describe uh, we should not take the information of verses 9 through 14, the historical information, and apply it to the Antichrist. Nor should we take the information of verses 23 through 26 and apply it to Antiochus. Uh, sure, sure, there's similarity, but we should know by now that similarities don't prove identity. The only point of contact is the 2300 days. And, of course, this has led to many varied and strange interpretations of the passage. Perhaps my understanding will give an interesting and plausible solution. Now, less obvious in many translations, but very clear in the Hebrew text, the writing style of this section is written in prose until verse 23. From verses 23 to 26, it is written in poetry. And that provides a significant syntactical break. And it focuses our attention on something different. That something different is identified in the first verse of the section and the last verse of the section. Verse 23, and in the latter period of their rule. Uh, this refers to the latter period of the rule of the four kingdoms mentioned in verse 22. Uh, that is far into the future when the four kingdoms will have actually been melded into the geographical boundaries of the end times. As verse 26 indicates, it pertains to many days significantly uh, in the future, is, is the uh, sense of that. Daniel 8, uh, 15 through 22, uh, Gabriel gives the explanation to Daniel. Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it appears to the uh, pertains to the appointed time of the end. Uh, now, that final period of indignation refers to God's last expression of divine discipline on the nation of Israel. Now, at the time of this vision, the nation is under discipline, 
um, of the Babylonian captivity. That's going to be brought to an end in about 14 years with the decree of Cyrus. Uh, that uh, will initiate the return of the Jews to their land in uh, 536 BCE, which is actually 450 years before the birth of Jesus. <clears throat> Sorry for that small chronological tease. Perhaps at another time we will get to that explanation in more detail. Now, after the return uh, of the Jews to the land in 536 BCE, after that, there is going to be periods of successful fulfillment of the nation's uh, evangelistic commission. But eventually, over the space of the next 483 years, the nation's faithfulness to God's standards is going to again deteriorate, and it will culminate in the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. Because of that, there was another and more extensive period of national discipline uh, assigned to the nation of Israel, and that has been discussed in previous episodes. At Luke 19, uh, 41 through 44, Jesus proclaimed uh, this when he wept over the city. If you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground, throw down your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And it began with the destruction of the nation in 70 AD, just as Jesus uh, prophesied at Luke 21, 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's the uh, final period of this extended time of discipline uh, on the Jewish people that Gabriel refers to as the final period of the indignation. And this then refers to the great tribulation that Satan and the beast will bring upon the Jewish people. God will use that as an extensive of discipline on the nation of Israel. At that time, um, God is going to use the wrath of Satan and the wrath of the beast to finalize that discipline on Israel. Now, uh, although it will indeed be an expression of God's wrath as discipline on the Jewish people, it's not to be seen as the final end times or day of the Lord wrath. That is uh, going to be poured out on all the unbelievers and the beast worshipers uh, when Jesus returns. Now, starting at Daniel 8.23, Gabriel reveals details about that final end times persecutor of the Jewish people. This corresponds with the man of lawlessness of 2 Thessalonians 2 and the beast of Revelation 13. And it also corresponds with the king of Daniel 11.36, the king of the West. But before he explains the time of the end details, he explains the near future rise of the nations in verses 20 through 22. Verse 20, the ram is media Persia, uh, viewed as one united kingdom and not two separate ones. 
At verse 21, the goat is the kingdom of Greece, and the horn is Alexander the Great, the first king. At verse 22, the four horns uh, are those that rise from the broken horn, refers to Alexander's four generals who divided the kingdom of Greece between themselves. Now we have the big shift. Verses 23 through 26 is now written in poetry. This uniquely sets it apart from the rest of the chapter, indeed from the rest uh, the remaining uh, portions of the book. And it gives a whole different prophetic focus. This section deals with events during the time of the end. Verses 23 through 25 describe the rise, activity, and death of the man of lawlessness, the beast of Revelation 13. At verse 26, Gabriel then makes the connection to the 2300 days of verse 14. In the historical context, the 2300 days extended from the initial desecration of the temple with the appointment of the false priest Menelaus. That period of time then extended until the temple was made righteous by the uh, return of Judas the hammer. In the future end times context, the 2300 days will begin with the desecration of the temple at the midpoint of the 70th week with the placement of the abomination of desolation, as Jesus indicated at Matthew 24, 15. Now, the abomination won't be removed until 1290 days later, according to Daniel 12:11. But the removal of the desolation and the destruction of the unauthorized temple does not constitute making things right. And of course, the number of days, 2300, they don't match up at all. Now, Gabriel declared, and the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told, is true. But as for you, keep the vision secret because it pertains to many days in the future. So there still must be 2300 days from the midpoint of the week when the beast begins his oppression until the holy place is properly restored, that is made righteous. That will not occur until there is a new temple in the earthly kingdom of Christ. In an end times context, the only thing that makes any sense is that the 2300 days refers to the time from the setting up of the abomination until the establishment that is a completed building of the millennial temple. And we know that it takes 1290 days to get rid of the desecration, according to, 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 to Daniel 12:11, which says, and from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1290 days. But that does not mean that at that time there will be a new temple built. Uh, then after that, we have 45 days before the millennial kingdom actually begins, Daniel 12:12. 12, 12, Happy is the one who is patient and, and, and attains to the 1335 days. And during that 45-day period, the earth is going to be cleansed of all unbelievers so that only believers will remain to go alive into the earthly kingdom of the Messiah. This is going to take place through, one, the removal of the fat sheep, unbelievers, from the lean sheep, believers, um, of Israel, uh, according to Ezekiel 34, 16 and following. And it also involves, too, the separation of the sheep and goats of the Gentiles, Matthew 25. The believers of Israel, the lean sheep, will go into the earthly kingdom. 
Uh, Ezekiel 34, 24 says, and I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. But the unbelievers, the fat sheep, I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Ezekiel 34, 16. All other unbelievers will be removed from the earth and ultimately go away into eternal punishment. The eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, which was taught by Jesus at Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Now, the only ones left will be the believers of Israel and the believers of the Gentiles. These will go into the kingdom and will enjoy the covenant of peace of Ezekiel 34, 25 and the huge banquet of Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. The Lord of armies will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will destroy the covering which is over all peoples, the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. So now, the question presents itself, who will build the millennial temple? I suggest that it is not Jesus who just zaps it together, but it is the people of Israel and others who actually do it. That will take them a little bit of time. Even with all the advances in technology that currently exist in the world today, most of the natural resources of the earth will have been destroyed through the day of the Lord's judgments. So that technology might not be easily available. Now, there's not much information about the actual building of this temple, but there is a hint to it at Ezekiel 43:18, And he said to me, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day it is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. Now, in the previous verses, Ezekiel 43, 10 through 17, all the instructions given about how it is supposed to be constructed and all the details seem to indicate that humans are responsible for the physical construction. In other words, it is placed on the shoulders of the people to make sure that they build it right. We do have a prophecy in Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Uh, most people think that the branch here refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Messiah. He is uh, then the official builder of the millennial temple, uh, because it's through his presence and reign that it can indeed be built. But based on the language in Ezekiel 43, the physical labor will be performed by the people of Israel and others. In the same way, it was said of Solomon by God, he shall build a house for my name. But of course, Solomon didn't do the actual physical work. First uh, Kings 6.2, as for the house which King Solomon built for Yahweh, uh, and verse 14, so Solomon built the house and it was finished. However, uh, throughout the entire narrative describing the building, the formula is, and he built, made, set, prepared, fashioned, overlaid. And 1 Kings 7.51, thus all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of Yahweh was finished. But 1 Kings 9.15, 1 
20 through 22. Now, this is the account of the forced labor of which King Solomon levied to build the house of Yahweh. Uh, as for all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, were, they were not of the sons of Israel. Their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy, from, from them Solomon levied forced laborers even to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel, for they were men of war, his servants, his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. But what about the resources needed in the millennial temple? The building of that temple will certainly occur after the kingdom starts. And even though there will be an immediate change in the ecology and the environment, the day of the Lord's judgments will have greatly depleted the earth's natural resources. Many passages indicate this, uh, but Isaiah 24, 1 through 3 gives a good summation of the destruction that the day of the Lord judgment will bring. Behold, the Lord says the earth, uh, behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, twists its surface and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest and the servant like his master, female servant like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely plundered. The memorial physical structures of the land will not be supernaturally rebuilt. It's going to take time and resources to restore the ruin and destruction of Israel's ancient monuments. According to Isaiah 61, 4, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Seems likely that the new temple is to be included in these structures. Now, let's back up a bit to the results from the military invasion of Israel. After the day of the Lord's judgments, whatever wealth and resources will remain throughout the world will be organized and dedicated to the establishment of a prosperous Israel. Uh, through the victory in the Battle of Jerusalem, after Jesus arrives there from Edom, the Jews will acquire a great deal of material wealth from what the king of the West had hoarded there and from the armies that had surrounded it. Zechariah 14, 14 says, And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. And Micah 4, 13 says, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to Yahweh their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Uh, so at the time the Israelites begin the kingdom, they will have a large abundance of plunder from the invaders. Also, during the 45 days prior to the official establishment of the kingdom, there will be a huge influx of resources from all the nations. Isaiah 60. 4 through 9 says, the wealth of all nations will come to you. Verse 9, their silver, their gold with them. So at the start of the kingdom, there will be an abundance of wealth in the land, and it will continue to come in as the building process continues. Uh, Isaiah 60, 10 and 11, foreigners will build up your walls so that they may bring to you the wealth of the nations. However, the possession of these various resources will not replace the needed technology to expedite the building of the temple. It's still going to take time. It's going to be 
2,300 days before the temple and the sanctuary are in a functional and righteous condition so that the prescribed worship protocol can begin. Now, from the midpoint of the 70th week, there will be 1,200, uh, pardon me, there will be 1,335 days until the happiness of the kingdom will be realized. Daniel 12, 11, and 12, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who is patient and attains to the 1,335 days. So 2,300 days minus 1,335 indicates there will be 965 days into the kingdom when the holy place is finally made righteous. Now that suggests that the building of the temple will take about 32 months. What is the issue in the 2,300 days? Daniel 8, 14 tells us that then the holy place will be properly restored or vindicated. Uh, the Hebrew literally says be made righteous, as I indicated before. Uh, the verb tzadak uh, certainly has a variety of meanings, but it occurs in the nifal stem only here. And it indicates that uh, the meaning is, is to be put right, as in put in the right condition. That, of course, would not happen until the new temple is built, which is called the holy place in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 45.3 says from uh, from this area, you shall measure a length of 25,000 cubits and a width of 10,000. And, and in it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary who come near to minister to the Lord. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. And it shall be an allotment to them from the allotment of the land, a most holy place by the border of the Levites. Now, at the time of Antiochus's persecutions, the temple was called the holy place as well. Uh, sometimes the term refers to the specific holy place inside the sanctuary, but sometimes it refers to the whole structure. Daniel 8.13 says that, that I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said uh, to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes desolation, so as to allow both the holy place and the host, the people, to be trampled. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. As uh, we saw earlier in, in 164 BC, Judas the Hammer properly restored the practice of animal sacrifices in the holy place. This is recorded at First Maccabees. Uh, 4, 47 through 53. But according to Gabriel, at Daniel 8, 26, the vision of the 2300 days is truth that pertains to many days in the future. And that means that we need to find an end times fulfillment for the 2300 days. In the awesome 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9, we have seen that Daniel, uh, seen at Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Uh, the purpose for giving Israel uh, 490 more years after the Chaldean captivity is in order to accomplish several things. The last of those things is to anoint the most holy. That is, to dedicate the new temple that will be built in the millennial kingdom. 
Now, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, seven years per week equals 490 years, does not require that the anointing of the Most Holy occur within that time frame or even immediately after it. In fact, it is most certain that there is no temple until at least the start of the kingdom. Thus, when the 70th week is completed, bringing to an end the 490 years of Daniel 9, there is still no anointing of the Most Holy. It seems quite reasonable that the Most Holy Place will be completed 2,300 days after the abomination of desolation is set up and 965 days after the start of the kingdom, which is about 32 months. O Israel, raise your eyes all around and see. They all to gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried on the hip. Then you will see and be radiant. and Your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephra. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and proclaim good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth will serve you. They will go up on my altar with acceptance, and I will glorify my glorious house. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an object of pride forever a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver, and instead of wood, bronze, and instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your administrators, and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call on your uh, call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light of day, nor will the moon give you light for brightness. But you will have the Lord as an everlasting light, and your God as your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon rain wane, for you will have the Lord as an everlasting light. And the days of your mourning will be all over. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a thousand and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will bring it about quickly in its time. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 